Thank you for taking the time to listen to the sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this, you are challenged by the Word of God, you are built up in love, and that you are drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want to remind you, this is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be present in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you do live in the North Toronto area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to join us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings. Our desire is that God would use this to encourage you with the hope we have in Jesus. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one. There are Bibles sitting on the table out there. You can keep that if you don't own one. So Acts is obviously, it's sort of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. So just keep turning towards uh, the, uh, the end of your uh, your Bible. So our title of our message today is called uh, Obey the Holy Spirit. We are to obey the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 9 of the novel Moby Dick, you'll find this statement. It says, all the things that God would have us to do are hard for us to do. Remember that. And hence, he oftener commands us than endeavors to persuade. And if we obey, we must disobey ourselves. And it is in this disobeying ourselves wherein the hardness of obeying God consists. It is not easy for us to obey God. And that's because it requires faith to believe that the plan of God is actually better than our plan. That's why it's hard to obey God. It's because we have to believe that what God says is actually better than what we are saying in our text today we're going to see that Paul and those serving in ministry with him had some very specific plans they had some things that they wanted to do they wanted to go into very specific areas to share the gospel but then God changes their plan he changes their plan and they submit to his plan He shows up and he says, you're not going this way, you're going that way. And they submit to that. And because of their obedience, because they submit, they get to see many lives changed. Here's the main idea in our passage today. God changes lives through our obedience to the Holy Spirit. God will change lives as we obey the Holy Spirit. So much of being a church that is not hidden starts right here. So much of being a church that makes a difference in the world starts right in this spot, a willingness to obey the Holy Spirit at all times. And so in Acts 16, verses 1 to 5, they explain how Paul meets Timothy for the first time. This is a young man who he actually mentors and helps to get started in Ministry, And then we're told that Paul and his team, they, had, uh, they end up going to Macedonia. So let's pick up the story right in verse 6. It says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. And so they want to go into Asia. They want to they go speak the word there. And then they try to go to Bithynia, but then that gets blocked as well. So they're trying to do all these things, but the Holy Spirit's like, nope, he's not allowing them to go in. He's frustrating their plans. And this probably was hard for them. 
It's probably hard, frustrating, maybe even confusing. Maybe there's a level of sadness going on for them. But it reminds us here that God is in charge. That's what this, this passage reminds us so clearly that God is in charge of our life, that this is his thing, and that he directs and guides us where he wants. And God is always going to do with us what brings him the most glory and what is best for us, the thing that makes us the most like Jesus. That's the aim of our life. And so God is more than willing to take us into a different direction if that will glorify him and if that will make us more like Jesus Christ. David, uh, Derek Thomas, he says, God always has something better planned for us than we would plan for ourselves. He always has something better planned for us than we would plan for ourselves. And this is true, not just when it comes to missions and evangelism, but through everything. It's true of everything. And so sometimes God will change our plans. Sometimes because God loves you, he will close the door on a relationship. Sometimes because God loves you, he'll close the door on a job. He will close the door on a friendship. He'll close the door on a new home. And when that happens, I know that it can be frustrating. It can be confusing. It can even take us to a place of anger. But we have to know. We have to know that God has a good plan. Here are some reasons on the screen why it's frustrating for us when God changes the plan. Because sometimes we think we know best. When God changes the plan in our life, one of the reasons why it's frustrating for us is because we think we know best. Pride tells us that we can see things more clearly. We can see the future. Therefore, I, I should be in charge. We think we know best. We don't like inconvenience. That's a big one for so many people. God's direction, the new direction, is, it might be hard. It might require a new level of sacrifice. It might require a new level of energy. And so we just don't like the inconvenience. And so we're like, what are you doing, God? What are you doing in my life? We don't like being wrong. It's hard to just, we got that one wrong. That's a humbling thing. Sometimes that's just flat out. God changes the plan because you're just wrong, Marv. And so I've got to do something better for you than you would do for yourselves. And then this one, and this is the, this is the toughest one for so many people, because sometimes a good desire is being left unmet. Some, it's a really good desire that is within you. Paul's desire at this moment is a good one. He wants to take the gospel to people, but he has to trust that if God is saying no to this direction, then he has a better plan. He knows why he would leave a good desire unmet. And it's the same thing for us. We have to trust that God's plan is better. Now, I know that is much easier for me to say standing here than for us to actually live. That some days, it's just very difficult to actually settle in and say, God, your plan is better. But we can do this. We can do this when we remember Jesus Christ. Because Jesus lived this. We can do this when we remember him. In Luke 22, verse 42, it's coming. I think it's coming. If it's not, it's right here. I always have a backup. But Luke 22, verse 42, it says, Father, if you are willing, Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. This is when Jesus is, is praying because he's about to die for our sins. And he says, God, if you have a better plan, 
He says, if there's another way that we can do this, if there's another way we can rescue and save these people, let's do that. He says, nevertheless, though, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus Christ, the perfect, spirit-filled man, followed his father's direction. He submitted to the plan of his father in order to save us. So now that those who have faith, faith in Jesus Christ, can obey the Holy Spirit, trusting that he is leading us into God's good plan for us. So Paul and those serving with him, they they want to go a certain way, but the Spirit has a better plan. Look now at verse 8. It says, So passing by Mycenae, we went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So the, the Holy Spirit now is guiding them through this vision. It's like a mother just guiding the steps of their child through Yorkdale Mall. And that word concluding in verse 10 in the, in the Greek means to deliberate. It means to reason. It actually means to talk and think things through. See, after seeing the, this vision, they don't drift into all kinds of superstition. There's not this superstitious moment that is going on. I have this, my one teammate, he he didn't wash his socks one year for three months. Yeah, you could smell old boy coming from a week away. He's just kind of sitting on your nostrils. And that's because he believed that if he didn't wash his socks, we would win games. That's superstition. And he stunk bad. But he believed, he, he drifted into this superstitious idea that we would win if he didn't wash his socks. But that's not happening here. It's not superstition. They talked. They prayed together, and once they concluded that God was leading, their obedience was immediate. There was immediate obedience, and God uses their obedience to change the life of many people. And we're going to see now that the, the, way, the lives that God changes shows us that the church is supposed to be this beautiful mix of all types of people. Verse 11 so setting sail for Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and following, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we remained in this city many days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where the, we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who had, who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Here's our first point today. When we obey the Holy Spirit, we will see God open hearts. We will see him open hearts. They arrive in Philippi, and then they go to the place of prayer, and we meet Lydia, and it says that as Paul is preaching, As Paul is proclaiming the truth about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, it says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. Luke mentions Lydia by name, and that's that's an important thing. It speaks, he mentions her by name because it speaks of her social importance. See, Lydia is a leading woman of the times, and she's described as a seller of purple goods. And we're told she's from Thyatira. Now, when you do your research, Thyatira is actually in Asia. 
So think about this. Paul wants to take the gospel into Asia to to give people a chance to put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit redirects them, says, no, go down to Macedonia. And the first person to come to Christ is from Asia. You don't think God knows what he's doing? You don't think God knows what he's doing with your life? You don't think God knows what he's doing with my life? That's why we're called to trust him. He's like, Paul, you want to reach people in Asia? Trust me. The first person to put their faith in Christ. He knows what he's doing in our lives. So Lydia leaves her home city. And then she establishes a successful business in an influential city. What you have here is a woman who is an entrepreneur. She is an entrepreneur. She is successful. In her life, what we see is that biblical womanhood is much more diverse and holistic than sometimes it's often presented. Biblical womanhood is more diverse and holistic than we often think it is. Here, think about this. Here's a single, successful businesswoman who owns her own home, we're going to see, because she uses it to practice hospitality in order to love the church. See, as we strive here at T North to be this church that is not hidden, to be public, let's never present biblical womanhood in some narrow way, because the Bible never does. The Bible shows you that biblical womanhood is very wide-ranging. And if you, want, if you don't trust me, just go home today and read Proverbs 31. Just take it in. It's much more holistic and diverse. It's a great example. She's a beautiful example of biblical womanhood. Lydia is saved. And then the evidence of her salvation is clear. Verse 15 It says, after she was baptized, her and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She does two things immediately. She gets baptized, and then she immediately begins practicing hospitality. We're going to see that this is is a common theme in the life of people who trust in Christ. Now, the beautiful thing, that is done in her life. It's not done by Paul. It's all done by God. It's his power that changes her life. This is why we don't worship the people who do the ministry. This is why we don't worship the people who stand here and speak to us or stand and lead us in singing. We worship God because it's all him. It's all working, him working through us. We are simply, all we are are instruments in his hand called every day to obey the Holy Spirit and trust that God is going to use our obedience to change lives. So Lydia welcomes them into her her home, and then after they spend some time with her, they head back to the place of prayer. And on their way, we meet this young girl who is being exploited. Look at verse 16. It says, as she was going to the place of prayer, we were met by As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had the spirit of divination and brought her owner much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. This she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Here's our second point. When we obey the Holy Spirit, we will see people experience freedom. We will see them experience freedom. This young girl has a sad life. 
She is possessed by an evil spirit. But notice that she's also owned. She has some evil owners who are taking advantage of her. They keep a close watch on her because they make money off of her. They're exploiting her. And she kept calling out who Paul and Silas were and what they were doing. This is similar. This is similar to what the the demons do with Jesus. When they see Jesus, they call him out as well. In Luke 4, I think it's coming. There it is. What you ha- the demons say, what have you to do with us, Jesus? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. See, Paul, Paul and Silas, they serve God with their life, but Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God, was the ultimate, perfect, sinless servant of God, who in Philippians 2, verse 8 said, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus served us. So now we can turn around and be called servants of God who give our lives for Jesus Christ, who obey the Spirit as he leads us. And so the girl's following them and she's calling them out. And so Paul tells the Spirit to leave her. Verse 18, this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned aside and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her, and it left her. Now, it doesn't leave her because Paul has the power. It leaves her because of the name of Jesus Christ. That's where all the power is. It's not because of Paul. It's because of Jesus Christ that this young woman experiences freedom from the bondage that she is in. She was in bondage to this evil spirit, but she was also in bondage to these evil people. And when the spirit left her, their hope of making money left them. It's like, and they're upset. When their hope of gain is gone, they're, 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 they're mad, like Draymond Green after getting called for a foul. Just angry. Look at verse 19. But when the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. They react in violence. It says that they drag them in. They're unhappy. And that's because they're obsessed with money. That's what you have here. These are people who are obsessed with money. It's their God. Money is more important to them than the dignity and welfare of this young girl. You see that? They don't care about, they don't care anything about her. They don't care at all what she is actually going through. They don't care at all how miserable her life must have been to be, to be possessed by the spirit and being used every single day. They don't care at all. This is what money does to your heart when you love it. It makes you cold. It makes you callous. It makes you use people. And it's evil. Some of the worst forms of oppression and exploitation in our world come from this sin, the love of Money, pornography, sex trafficking, cheap wages, the Atlantic slave trade, all of these things are because people are obsessed and they love 
money. These, these things remind us, when we think about them, they remind us how evil we can be when money is our God. 1 Timothy 6 verse 10 says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. See, money in itself is not evil. Money can be used for a lot of good. The offering that we give every week here goes to pay so that we can use this space to gather as a church. Money can be used for good, but money, so money is not evil. But when we become obsessed with it, when we love it, when that's all we go after, and some of us have to admit, we've been in that spot, that we love money. It says it leads to all kinds of evil. She was in bondage, but so were the people who owned her. She's not free, but neither are they. They're in the grip of bondage because money is their God. And just like them, people in our culture are in bondage to money. It's their God. And it's because money brings this feeling of power. Money brings this feeling of safety. Money brings this feeling of security. But that's an illusion. Do you get that? Because as quick as it comes in, it can go out. Just kind of like a tide. Just rocking in and out. As quick as it comes in, it can go out. And then in that moment, all that safety, all that security, all that comfort that we feel is gone. That's the lie that money, that's the lie that the love of money tries to tell us. That it can give us this permanent feeling of safety and security. When we're obsessed with it, what we are is we're in bondage. We're not living a life of freedom. But people can experience freedom. All through the powerful name of Jesus Christ. That's why we obey the Holy Spirit and we share as he gives us opportunity to those who need Christ, that feeling of power and security can be gone. It's only in a relationship with Jesus Christ that we find ultimate safety, security, and love. That's where our faith is supposed to be, not in money. And so God will open hearts as we obey the Holy Spirit. He will, we will see people experience freedom. And this last one, we, when we obey the Holy Spirit, we'll see others participate in our joy. Other people will participate in our joy. Verse 22 says, the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison and ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So Paul and Silas are beaten, beaten with rods, and then they're thrown in jail. And that term there, the inner prison, was actually their, uh, their, uh, their idea of maximum security. They're thrown into the darkest parts of the prison, and then their feet are fastened in stocks. Here's a picture of what this looked like. This, was, this is the device that they're their feet are in. And so your, your feet, would, your ankles would go through those holes and they would clamp down on you. Stocks had, there, there was one, they, had, they served two purposes. One was to keep you secure so you couldn't get, get away. And the other one was to torture you. So the longer you were in there, the more those would start to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze on you. 
And so these guys are in pain. You have to sleep sitting up. And you, if you were starting to cramp, you could do nothing to stop yourself from cramping. So they're, they're being tortured. They're being beaten. But check out their response. Take it in. Verse 25. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. All the pain. All the torture could not stifle the joy and trust that was in their heart and life. You see the joy and trust in the singing. You see the joy and trust in the praying. See, when we obey the Holy Spirit, here's a true reality. You're going to go through trials. It's not like, oh, obey the Holy Spirit. Yes, I want to do that. Everything is going to be easy. That's not true. Sometimes obeying the Holy Spirit, as we see here, walks you right into a trial. The Holy Spirit doesn't say to them, you're going to go to jail when you go to Macedonia. It doesn't tell them that. But he, he, he leads them right into a trial. And so that's true for our life as well. But this shows us that joy is possible in the trial. When your joy is authentic, when it's real, when it's deep, when it's thick, it becomes very difficult for Christians and non-Christians to ignore that. When you're in the midst of a trial, but it doesn't rob you of joy, people can't ignore that. Notice the prisoners are listening to them. They're wondering, what's up with these guys? Their joy is deep and real, and joy comes into hard times when we sing gospel-rich Songs, when we pray the promises of God back to Him, pleading with Him, asking Him to fulfill those to us. Notice, Paul and Silas are singing before they're set free. They're singing and they don't even know if they're going to get free. But they're singing anyway, singing and praying. Look what happens next, verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And, and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear, and fell down before Paul and Silas. The earthquake opens all the doors. It opens all the stocks. Everyone has the ability to go free. And the jailer is about to kill himself. That's because back then, if you actually lost your prisoner, they would kill you. So he's like, well, my life's over anyway. And so he's about to kill himself, but Paul stops him. He says, we are all here. No one has left. See, this earthquake, God sends this for this jailer. He sends it because he's bringing him to a place of humility. Notice it says that he rushes in and he falls at their feet. He's finally in a place of humility. And he's ready now to hear what they have to say. Verse 30 says, Then they brought, he brought them outside. And he, says, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all were in his house. And they took them that same hour of the night, and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them to his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. 
the jailer asked a question that everyone should be asking. What must I do to be saved, he says. That's a question every single person needs to answer. Because when we, when we actually stop and think about our life, we realize that we have sinned against God. And that there's a moment coming where we will stand before God. And that we, we have to think, how am I going to be saved from that? How am, how am I going to, how do I have an advocate? Who is going to help me before God the Father? They tell him, verse 31, they say, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. They tell him the way of salvation. To the non-Christian who's sitting in the room, if you want to know how, how, who can save me from myself, who can save me from all this sin, Jesus Christ can. You are to believe the gospel, that he gave his entire life for us on the cross, and that when we trust in Jesus Christ, that his perfect life is credited to us, that we are counted righteous with him, that he rose on the third day, that he is going to come back, and that all those who are trusting in him will stand there with him next to them as their advocate before the Father. That is how we will be saved. Everything outside of that, you are in trouble. And they love him enough to tell him. And you, you see in the life of the jailer that one of the things that keeps people out of the kingdom of God is pride. We just don't like anybody to tell us what to do. We don't think we need saving. Stop believing that lie if you are. We are to humble ourselves and get to a place where we realize I am a sinner in need of a savior. And when we turn to Jesus Christ, he rescues us. Paul and Silas, you're like, why is this passage in this series? It's because they were being a city on a hill in that jail. Their joy was so deep that it was shining a bright light. This jailer noticed that about them. How we are in the midst of trials can, again, I talked about this last week, can be very evangelistic. He turns to Christ and you see his joy immediately. The joy is seen in his actions. First, there's an act of compassion. In verse 33, it says that he washed their wounds. You got to think about this before. All this jailer wanted to do was punish these guys. When he, he threw them in the darkest part of the prison, locked them in a device that was crushing them. All he wanted to do was punish them. Now all he wants to do is ease their pain. He washes their wounds. And this reminds us that acts of compassion are to define us as individuals and as to define us as a church. Then there's an act of obedience. Verse 33 says that he was baptized immediately. There's no hesitation. And you remember, Lydia, same thing. She was saved, baptized. If you have been saved, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation and you're not baptized, that's what you need to do next. That is the next step of obedience for you. You are to obey the Holy Spirit and take that step. And if you want to be baptized, just come talk to me after. We are going to do a baptism service at some point uh, in this year. But we want to baptize you if you have not been baptized. So there's compassion, there's obedience, and then there's an act of hospitality. It says in verse 34, he brought them to his house and set food before them. He welcomed them into his home and he provides a good meal for them. And here's the thing, don't miss that the church leadership didn't organize this. 
Uh, yeah, amen, Yogi. No church leadership organized this. This is just a brother in Christ taking the initiative to invite a bunch of brothers over to his house. That's all. Don't be that person who's like, the church never does anything to connect us to one another, blah, blah, blah. Don't do that. Don't be that person. Just be the person who takes the initiative. Don't spend so much time complaining about it. Just be about it. It's actually commanded in Scripture. Hebrews says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. That's a good word. Not just people you know and like. Not just people who's like, it's easy to be with these people. They never stay too long. (laughs) It says to strangers, people you don't know, actually go out of your way to meet those people and invite them in and find that your life will be changed as you realize how people view and are navigating life in different ways, different than you. That you are to do it with strangers. And then this is really good. 1 Peter 4, 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So don't just invite them in and be like, man, I wish these people would leave. Or when they go after, you know, sort of grumble about it. Oh, that was really tough. You're supposed to do it full of joy. You don't think the people can feel it when you don't really want, then you don't want them in your space? We are to do it without grumbling, with joy. It's commanded. It's through hospitality that we learn about one another. That we learn about each other's culture, the way cultures think about different things. It's through hospitality that we encourage those people who are discouraged. I want us as a church always to be looking out for those kinds of people. Who is the person coming in here and you can tell by their countenance, by their demeanor, that they're just in a real hard spot? And invite that person in. Go over to them and just say, what's going on? How can we love you as a church? That's what I want here. And your elders, not just me, our elders feel the very same way about this. I've said this multiple times. If this is just a Sunday in and out thing, this is not good. That we are to get into each other's lives. I make a mean jerk chicken. So at some point, I just came from nowhere. Okay. So hospitality is a way that we encourage those who are struggling. Hospitality is a way that we share our joy. It's a way that we share our joy as we obey the Holy Spirit and welcome Christians and non-Christians into our homes. So we don't just show hospitality to those who are in Christ. We show it to those who are outside of Christ as well as a means of saying, look at the joy that I have in my life. Look at, the, look at this. We are struggling, yes, in so many ways, but the joy here is deep and it's real. And they're like, why? Because of Jesus Christ. And so we welcome people in. The practice of hospitality will change our life and it will change the life of other people. This jailer, is a completely changed man. He is full of joy. That's why it says that he rejoiced in verse 34, that he had believed in God. He's participating now in the joy that he saw in Paul and Silas. And all because, all because they obeyed the Spirit. All because they said, God, your plan is better than my plan. God had something better planned for them than they had for themselves. As we strive here to be a church that is not hidden, a city on a hill, let's follow their example. Submitting to the Spirit's leading 
as he speaks to us through the word and through others. You're like, how do I follow the spirit? The spirit speaks to us from the word of God. And he speaks to us through other trusted believers. And as we follow his leading, let's be confident that he will change lives, our life and the life of other people, wealthy people like Lydia. She's wealthy. Poor people like this slave girl who is being abused and used. Middle class people like this jailer, trusting that as we obey the Spirit, God will use it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, your Spirit, who we are called to obey every single day, who who as he leads us will lead us into things that are hard for us at times, but Lord reminds us that joy is possible. Who leads us to people who you will open their hearts as we are faithful in sharing the gospel with them, telling them about Jesus Christ. And so Father, we thank you that you love us and that you have given your spirit to be in us. You have left your spirit here, Lord. This song that we're going to sing says that we have your spirit with us until the work is done. There is work to do. And it starts, God, by us being willing to trust your good plan for us wherever you lead, knowing, Lord, that wherever you have us, that we are not alone. That we can say hallelujah, that your mercy is with us every day. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to be people who obey the Holy Spirit and disobey ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more resources or information about Hope Church, visit HopeTorontoNorth.com.